So this morning's reading is from Revelation chapter 20. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among you, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was, who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring, from the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of, seven, of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of every precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates. 
On the gates there were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them there were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 1,200 stadia in length, and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold as pure as trans, trans, transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb of its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour to it. On no day will the gates ever be shut. There will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down to the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God, of the Lamb, will be in the city, and its servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will no, not be need for light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show the servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in the scroll. Thanks, Gary. Great job. Uh, please keep your Bibles uh, handy there in uh, those chapters, end of Revelation. And uh, what a glorious picture, isn't it? I feel like getting up here, I'm just going to ruin it. But uh, let's pray that we don't. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have told us the end right from the beginning. Uh, We don't have to wonder and question what the future holds, uh, but we know that the future is very good. And Lord, we pray this morning that we would just get even the tiniest little glimpse of how amazing your perfected kingdom will be, that we would hope for it and long for it and say, yes, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, you can find a a little outline uh, inside your leaflets there and follow along. Uh, There's so much we could say uh, looking at those passages. I mean, there's so much in there, but we're really going to try and just sort of plough through uh, as, as quickly as we can and get the general big picture. Well, my son, uh, Micah, and I, uh, we started reading a a series of children's books uh, about a poor girl who finds herself caught up in a world of secret agents and evil magicians and cool gadgets. And uh, the first book we read was great. And it just had the perfect ending. It's the kind of ending that you want at the end of a book. Uh, it, It started with the misfit heroine going on this quest to rescue her brother from these evil bad guys and and try and find her place in the world. Uh, And so you get to the end of the book and the book had come a perfect circle. She's rescued her brother, defeated the bad guys and suddenly has kind of figured out where she fits in life. All those sort of major elements of the story were neatly wrapped up and tied up with a bow. A great ending. We read the next book in the series, and I could tell when we're just, you know, a couple of chapters out from the end, I thought, hang on, this this is not going to get finished. This is not going to wrap up in the next two chapters. And it finished with those dreaded words, to be continued. (laughs) And he hasn't even written the next book yet, so we're going to wait. See, as humans, we, we love an ending that comes perfect circle, don't we? We love it when all the elements, all the conflict, all the tension, all the problems all get resolved and wrapped up. We like things neat and finished. Now, when it comes to a novel, if it doesn't come full circle, it's just frustrating, isn't it? When it comes to the Bible, if it doesn't come full circle, it's actually a problem. Because way back at the beginning, all the way along, God has promised that it would. He's promised that the problem would be fixed, would be dealt with, that he would build his kingdom, that he would send his king to fix everything. He's promised that in the end, everything will turn out how it should turn out. Now, a few times uh, recently, as we've been working through this series Uh, A couple of people and a few teenagers actually have asked me uh, a a question uh, sort of to this effect of, well, hang on, if everything was perfect at the beginning and then everything's perfect at the end, why all this in the middle? Why all the mess and the death and the sin and the wars and the pain and, and why? Why didn't God just make it perfect and never that been in the middle, so it just stayed perfect? But here, when we get to the end, we see that the perfect ending is not just a reboot of the perfect beginning. God doesn't just hit the reset button. He actually hits the renew button. 
And so the perfect ending we finish with is different, new, more perfect, better. It far exceeds even the incredible and unimaginable wonder of how good it started before we wrecked it. The ending is unimaginably better than even the unimaginably good beginning. See, the story of the Bible isn't about a failed creation where God's experiment didn't work and he spent all this time trying to figure out how to put it back to how it was. No, God's plan from before creation was always to build something better than what it started, something more glorious. We're not going back to Eden. We're going forward to a new heavenly Jerusalem. And what do we see there? Well, first we see point one, the serpent crushed. Have a look uh, there at uh, verse 10, that first verse in uh, chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I wonder if you've got, you know, that kind of comic book image of Satan in your mind. You know, you know what I mean? Uh, that image of sort of Satan, you know, maybe he's got a pitchfork, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's the kind of suave Satan in a, you know, in a suit and driving a black Lamborghini or whatever. But that picture of Satan that our world has, where Satan's the guy who kind of runs hell. You know what I mean? He's down there. He's having the time of his life because he hates people and he just loves tormenting people and so he's making sure everyone's getting good and tormented. But actually, that couldn't be further from the truth because in hell, for all eternity, Satan is not the one tormenting people. He's thrown in there into the maximum security section as the number one prisoner being tormented. See, Satan, that, that serpent, the devil, who right back at the beginning came into God's place with a plan to destroy, is now cast out of God's place. And he himself is destroyed. Never again will he come into God's place. Never again will he deceive God's people. Satan is the serpent, is crushed. And this is great news because it, it means that we, we don't end up in a loop. We don't end up in this never-ending cycle of, okay, well, God reboots things and then it, it's good for a little while and then it all falls in a heap and we start the cycle again. No. The serpent is crushed. Two, we see the rebels will be judged. Have a look there at chapter 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Anyone, verse 15, whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So you remember 
way back in the beginning. You can see that little diagram on the back of your, uh, of your sermon notes. Way back in the beginning in the garden, when God, the king of creation, spoke to his people, Adam and Eve, and he told them that if they rebelled against his rule, they would die. Now, in that moment when they ate the forbidden fruit, they did die. Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2 tell us that actually we died spiritually on that moment. Dead in sin, a spiritual death cut off from God. And they realised it straight away. Naked, ashamed, broken. But that wasn't the end of the judgment. Because that spiritual death led to physical death. And ever since Adam, physical death has taken and overtaken every single descendant of Adam and Eve who's ever been born, except a couple of notable exceptions. Now, I often hear unbelievers talk about death as being relief. Someone who's been suffering a long time and sometimes you, you hear someone say, well, oh, they're okay now. It's all over. They're not in pain anymore. It's death has come and that's it. Some unbelievers have you know, that, that, that idea that well, death is the end and there is no more and we just cease to exist and kaput. Others hold you know, this kind of illogical belief that even though their loved ones have said no to God all their lives, have spent their whole lives telling God to stay out and leave them alone, that suddenly when they die, God will welcome them in. But actually death is not the end. It's not kaput. And we can't expect that if we've said no to God all our lives that he will suddenly say yes to us. See, just like spiritual death led to physical death, physical death, leads to a second death. It's not the end of God's judgment. See, after death, when Christ returns, what we see here is a resurrection. Every single human being that has ever been on the planet will be raised up and they will stand there before the throne of God and they will be judged according to whether they have bowed the knee to God's king or whether they have turned away from him and rejected him. Those who rejected God and his king will be rejected. Those who bowed to him will be brought in. Those who chose instead to follow the serpent will follow the serpent into the lake of fire. Those who chose to follow the king will follow the king into his kingdom. This judgment is right it is just. And it's portrayed here as it is in the rest of Scripture, not as a sudden moment that is then over, but as ongoing, as horrendous, as eternal torment. See, death, death is not getting off the hook of God's judgment because the second death is coming. The serpent is crushed, God's enemies 
are judged. And third, we see, at the end, death itself will be destroyed. Have a look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Now we um, hear often say uh, the Apostles' Creed, which is a really old declaration uh, of a summary of the teaching of the Apostles, of of the teaching of Scripture. Uh, And there's one line in there that we say, uh, and Christ descended into hell. Now, actually, uh, this word that uh, we have there as hell is actually the original Greek word of Hades, which is kind of picking up also a Hebrew word, dumas. And and it probably doesn't mean what we think of when we think of hell. Uh, We think of hell as uh, the place of judgment where God's enemies go. Uh, But here it actually just means the realm of the dead, kind of the place where dead are. Uh, and, and, and it's not just some dead, but all dead, whether good, righteous or unrighteous, whether in Christ or not. Uh, in Psalm 16, verse 10, the psalmist is speaking of Jesus, and he says this, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. See, Jesus entered the realm of the dead. He went to that place where all dead people go, the grave, Hades. And yet, when Jesus returns, that place will be needed no more. Once all the dead are raised and they're judged and they go to their final resting place or place of torment, there's no need for Hades, there's no need for death because never again will death come to a single person. And so here, death itself is picked up and thrown into the lake of fire. Death is dead. The last enemy is destroyed, swallowed up in victory. No longer will it reign. And fourthly, we see that heaven comes to earth. Now, have you ever thought of eternity and just thought, boring? I know I have. I'm not into clouds. I, I don't have, have any interest in learning to play a harp. And honestly, I would rather a dirt bike than a pair of wings. But I think that actually even most Christians, we, we have this, you know, you laugh because it's, it's silly, isn't it? We have this silly view and, and, and uh, a picture of God's eternal kingdom that often doesn't match up with what the scriptures tell us it's going to look like. Often we have a picture of eternity with God as something that's less real, less physical, less exciting than the world we have now. Actually, this world that we're in now is is a broken world. The bodies we have now are broken bodies. Anything good that you and I experience now, we experience a broken and damaged good with broken and damaged bodies and senses. When we enter a new remade creation, a new remade earth with new remade bodies, even the same good things we enjoy now will be so much better, so much more real, so much more exciting and amazing. See, the 
the hope that we have is not some disembodied, floaty, cloud-like, ethereal existence for all eternity. We don't actually even spend eternity in heaven. Our hope is not heaven for all time. It's actually heaven come to earth. See, in this new earth, the new heaven comes down. And what was once separate is now joined. And so we're right back in the beginning when God created this perfect world. God's people were on earth. And where was God? He was in heaven. And from time to time, we know he came down and he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And as amazing as that was, he didn't stay there. Yet in the new creation, in God's perfected kingdom, the dwelling place where God lives and dwells comes to be the same as the place where we do. Where God is right in our midst. Have a look at chapter 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. So here in this new creation, there's no need anymore for a temple because actually God himself is there and he and the Lamb, Jesus, are the temple. And there's no need actually even for a sun to shine because the God who said, let there be light, who is himself light, will be our light. Where we're going is far better than where we came from. And this means that actually it it would be crazy for us to try and get back to the garden. It would be crazy for us to try and take this broken creation and try and take it back to the garden. Trying to redeem it and turn it into God's kingdom because actually even if we could turn this world back into what it was back at Eden it still doesn't have a patch on the new creation that's coming. So our focus, while we care for the world that God's given us, our focus is eternal. We focus on people and not plants and we focus on salvation and souls and not salamanders. We are going to a new creation, far better than this one where heaven comes down from earth and God will dwell with us forever. And here we actually see the greatest thing about God's kingdom. And it's God himself. Point five, the Lord and the Lamb. Have a look, 21 verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. 
On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse, verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, uh, I'm sure many of you will know the story of Pinocchio. might be a bit old hat now. Uh, but Pio- Pinocchio was a, a little wooden boy, uh, and he was on his way to school one day when he got cornered by a fox called Honest John. Um, kind of ironically named, as you can tell by the uh, shifty eyes there. And, and Honest John tells Pinocchio all about this place called Pleasure Island. And uh, here in Pleasure Island, boys can go, they can do whatever they want. There's everything they could possibly want, all the soda and lollies, and it's back in the 1940s, so they could smoke cigars and drink beer as well, and uh, play pool and whatever they wanted to do. It's, it's, it, look at it. It's, it, it's like a, an amusement park, and everything's free. But we know in that story, all the boys who go there <laughs> turn into donkeys and get shipped off to work. And you see just, uh, just how far Disney's moral compass has come, don't you? Uh, from, from saying that chasing pleasure doesn't work in the end to, you know, Disney these days. But actually lots of people, and, and I think even myself, am tempted sometimes to think of heaven, of God's new creation, of God's kingdom, as a bit of a pleasure island, where I'll just get to do all those things that I like, all those things that tickle my fancy and, and those things that bring me joy and pleasure now. But actually, that's more of a Muslim picture than a Christian picture. See, the kingdom will be full of pleasure. And there will be nothing good about this creation that we won't enjoy in the next. It won't be less good than this. On the contrary... But what makes God's kingdom so great is not all the things he's made, but it's him. It's that he is there. It's that he is at the centre, the one who loves us and made us and then redeemed us. He is there. And that our Lord, our friend, our saviour, the lamb who died for us, took our punishment to rescue us and bring us into his kingdom, will be right there with us and he'll reach out with his hands which still bear the scars of where the nails went that saved us and he'll wipe away every sad tear from our eyes. See, any idea of heaven that doesn't have the Lord and the Lamb right at the centre, where the centrepiece and the focal point and the greatness of heaven and of the new creation is not the Lord himself, well, that's not a real portrayal at all. 
uh, back when I married Keely, uh, she had this little white 1990 Nissan Pulsar, you know, kind of real grandma spec, uh, you know, car, velour interior, you know, real flash. And um, she had a decent job at the time and, and uh, she had a, a laptop and uh, she had a, a wardrobe full of women's clothes. Um, you know, and that, she had a couple of recipes that she'd gotten a handle on that she could, uh, she could cook. Uh, but that was about it. Uh, but of course, I didn't marry Keely for her stuff. I married Keely for her. Because I thought she was the most amazing human I'd ever come across. Uh, because she loved me despite all my faults and put up with me. Because she was kind and gracious. I didn't marry her for her laptop or the Pulsar, which I actually hated. <laughs> and her cooking wasn't as good then as it is now. But I didn't marry her for what I could get out of her. I married her for her because I loved her and wanted to be with her. And uh, this Friday we clock up 16 years and I still love being married to her for her, not for what Keely can give me, but for Keely herself. And you know, the best thing about the kingdom of heaven is not what we can get out of God. It's not what he will make that we will enjoy. As if we want to get to heaven and the first thing we want to do is, oh, what have you made me, God, and run off and play with those things. No, we'll get there to the new creation, to God's kingdom and all we'll want is God himself. The Lord who loves us and saved us. And you know, as we look around at this life, so often I feel like I'm missing out. I don't know about you, I see people's feeds, I see people on you know, amazing holidays and you know, sort of on the Greek Isles tanning themselves or in Fiji or... You know, off on a caravan around Australia or whatever they're doing, and or I, or I drive past a beautiful farm with a lovely little limestone cottage and some big sheds and lots of big machines, and you know, and it can look at people with all this spare time and full free weekends and disposable income and greener grass, and, and it's easy to feel like I'm missing out. Easy to feel that I'm giving all this up. And that one day I might regret that. But all that stuff is peanuts. When we get to the new creation, the views will be better, the grass will be greener, the fruit will be sweeter, the leisure more leisurely. Everything will be so amazing that we won't even remember the highs of this world. We won't want for anything because we will have Jesus. We'll have the Lord God. And point six, in the new creation, in the perfected kingdom, we see the glory of the nations. Have a look at chapter 21 and verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. 
On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, I love the way Zimbabweans dance. I love the way Tongans sing. I love the way Filipinos show hospitality. I love the way Greeks and Italians hug and kiss. I love the way Germans do engineering. I love the way Indians dress and the way Thais make curry and I'm wearing a Ugandan shirt. Uh, I love the way Aussies are laid back. In every culture, there's amazing things, aren't there? Wonderful things, praiseworthy things, things that are that legacy, that hint that we were made in God's image of a God who is a creative and vibrant and wonderful God who makes beautiful and wonderful things. There's so much good and wonderful in this world. So much, so much that actually won't be lost. As we enter into God's perfected kingdom, the good and the glorious and the praiseworthy and the wonderful about the glory of the nations and the kings of the earth will come with us. And how amazing and vibrant and beautiful that will be when God gathers all his people from every tribe and tongue and nation and puts us in one place in his incredible multicultural city. See, we don't get homogenised. It's not that we sort of, we die and we all get kind of stuck through some machine that pumps us all out as Westerners. No. One of the most beautiful things about the perfected kingdom is that we are all so different, all in the image of God, bringing the glory in. And so church now should actually reflect that reality. How wonderful is it when our church reflects that reality, when we can see different cultures and nationalities all coming together, accommodating, welcoming, loving, gathering together as God's people. And lastly, we see the kingdom is coming soon. Have a look at chapter 22 and verse 7. Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. See, blessed are all who humble themselves and submit to the king now. I mean, that's what this whole scroll of Revelation is trying to tell us. Submit to the king. It's what the whole of the story from the beginning and end of the Bible is trying to tell us. Submit to Jesus, the king. Because all who humble themselves and bow to him now will not be humbled when he returns. And he's coming soon. So, brothers and sisters, let's long for his return. Long for his perfected kingdom. There's nothing better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful glimpse into your amazing kingdom. And we pray that you would turn our hearts to long for that city that endures and lasts And not for a city that is crumbling. Not for temporary pleasures, but for eternal joy and glory where you will wipe every tear from our eyes. Amen.